Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We've got a great lineup of questions today on LegalWise with Ted Eccles. We'll be talking about the crime of adultery, handyman dilemmas, Serving as an executor, the quandary of joint accounts, contracts for deed, nonprofit organizations, and attractive nuisances. So let's get started. Zachary has a question. He says, If my wife and I pass away when our children are less than 18, who will be the kid's guardian? Well, Zachary, you have identified one of the most weighty questions I'm asked by young parents when I'm talking with them about their estate planning. Many times, they don't have a tremendous amount of assets, but nevertheless, they want to have their wishes followed if some tragedy happens and they aren't around to care for their kids. There are at least two important reasons to draft a will for young couples. The first is the opportunity in the will to specify their preference for a guardian for their children. While the court has the final authority in appointing the guardian, the probate court will give deference to the parents if it's clearly expressed in their will. Another important reason to have a will is so that the surviving spouse won't have to share ownership of the property with the minor children. Under Georgia law, if a parent dies without a will, The children are heirs at law and are entitled to share the estate with the surviving spouse. This is not what most parents want. For the typical young couple, they desire to leave their property to their spouse alone, who will then take care of the children. So Zachary, it's important to have a will so that you can decide who will be the guardian rather than have your loved ones fight over that important job. That's a great question, Zachary. And if you have a question for LegalWise with Ted Eccles, go to LegalWiseGA.com. Jeff has written in a question. He says, is there a difference between a nonprofit organization and a tax-exempt organization? Well, Jeff, yes, there is a difference in Georgia an individual or group of individuals can form a nonprofit organization that's not owned or operated for profit. This status of nonprofit is granted by the state of Georgia. These organizations don't earn income for the benefit of shareholders, rather, they conduct activities that benefit the public or the members of the organization. If donations are made to the organization, the donations do not necessarily provide a tax benefit to the donor. Similarly, the nonprofit may not receive certain tax benefits available to an organization that has obtained the additional recognition as a tax-exempt organization. 
The 501c3 designation is separate, and it's granted by the IRS, which is a federal organization. The most common 501c3 organization is typically a church, but there are other entities recognized as tax-exempt also. They include charities, educational entities, entities preventing cruelty to children or animals, and similar organizations. It's important to consult with an experienced attorney prior to even filing the Articles of Incorporation because the IRS will not accept an organization for tax-exempt status unless the organizational articles are drafted in such a way as to comply with the Internal Revenue Code. The benefits of tax-exempt are substantial. The primary reason most organizations want the 501c3 status is because the folks who donate to them receive a tax-deductible charitable donation. Some organizations also can receive an exemption for certain employment taxes. You may ask, why wouldn't all nonprofits want the tax-exempt status? Well, in order to qualify, the organization must give up the ability to conduct certain activities such as participating in political campaigns or from supporting individual candidates for political office. And these organizations can't substantially participate in any activity that isn't consistent with its exempt purpose. So if you're thinking about forming a nonprofit, consider the cost and benefits of being tax exempt before filing your formation documents and proceed accordingly with the assistance of an experienced attorney. Thanks for the question, Jeff. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Rashid has a question. He says, I'm looking at buying a house and the seller has offered to allow me to enter into a contract for deed. What is a contract for deed? Well, this is a great question, Rashid. The contract for deed is a method of transfer that's been around a long time, but it's not used in common settings these days. Unlike the typical sales transaction, the contract for deed does not involve the immediate transfer of title to the property. Rather, the seller simply enters into a contract agreeing to transfer title to the purchaser when the total purchase price is paid to the seller. In contrast, in a more typical transaction involving a third-party lender, like a bank, the seller transfers title by deed to the buyer at the closing, and then the buyer conveys a deed to secure debt to the bank in exchange for a loan. The purchaser then becomes the owner of the property immediately, subject only to the rights of the lender to foreclose if the purchaser fails to make the required monthly payments. Well, with the contract for deed, no deed is transferred, and if the purchaser violates the terms of the contract, he may forfeit all of the payments he's made and be subject to being removed from the property through a dispossessory action. And there are some organizations that contend the contract for deed is abused by some sellers to take advantage of purchasers who don't qualify for traditional lending avenues by creating ways to more easily divest that purchaser of his investment in the property. And on the other hand, sellers argue that the contract for deed allows a purchaser who's struggling to find financing a way to lock in the purchase at today's value and build equity in the house while he bills his credit. 
I would urge caution on both sides and encourage the buyer and seller to seek legal advice with an experienced attorney prior to entering into a contract for deed. Thanks for the question, Rashid. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Jennifer has a question. She says, my sister is married and she thinks her husband is being unfaithful. Is adultery a crime in Georgia, and how does that impact divorce? Well, Jennifer, I know that this suspicion being experienced by your sister is causing great stress in her life. Even if the adultery isn't occurring, the mere suspicion is distressing and will likely need to be addressed in some way if the relationship can ever be salvaged. But in addressing the particular question, in most cases, adultery is a violation of trust in the most intimate sense, and at best causes months, if not years, of marital complications. Many times it leads to divorce. The state of Georgia continues to address adultery in its criminal laws. While it is technically and legally considered a misdemeanor punished by a fine and or jail time, One commentator has said that adultery hasn't been prosecuted in Georgia for a hundred years. So why do we still have it on the books? Well, that's a good question. Practically speaking, since it is still a crime, neither the accused or the other participant can be forced to testify about the adultery. They can assert their Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and not incriminate themselves. As you can imagine, this can be frustrating for litigants in a divorce action because adultery does impact certain aspects of the case. For example, a cheating spouse typically is precluded from receiving alimony. In addition, the jury or judge may consider the adultery when considering how to equitably divide the property. Since the rule is not equal, but rather equitable, the judge may decide to award more property to the non-cheating spouse. So I have a question for you listeners of LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Do you think that Georgia should decriminalize adultery so that the participants can be compelled to testify regarding their behavior, making it easier to prove the adultery in the civil divorce action? Or do you think it should remain a crime? Go to LegalWiseGA.com and let me know what you think about this important topic. While adultery is one of the reasons Georgia will allow a divorce, it can be negated if the parties have agreed to an open marriage or both parties have committed adultery. Thanks for the question, Jennifer. It has promoted a frank discussion about a very serious legal issue. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Are you aware of the threats and predators that are relentlessly pursuing your assets? Join me, Ted Eccles, in a free virtual workshop where we'll discuss estate planning essentials and protecting your estate. To learn more, visit EccleslawGroup.com and submit your request to take part in one of our weekly workshops. Eccles Law Group is committed to helping you find peace of mind. Lucy has a question. She says, My husband recently passed away. We had one savings account and one checking account, which were both in our joint names. Since my husband has died, should I add one of my children's names to the account so they can help me pay bills? 
Well, Lucy, I'm sorry for your loss. This is a common question I receive at the Eccles Law Group. With joint accounts, Georgia law, and most likely the contract with the bank, state that the account belongs to the survivor of the joint owners. As a result, the bank will simply remove your husband's name from the account and you are recognized as the sole owner of the account. This is likely consistent with your husband's intent in having the joint account, that you would own the property at his death. Adding one of your children's names to your account will likely have a different impact. First, you likely don't intend for the money in the account to simply belong to one of your children if you have multiples. Having their name on your account could actually frustrate your distribution intent. In addition, by adding one of your children to the account, you will expose the money in the account to the potential creditors of your child. The creditor may attempt to garnish the money in the account even though it is your money. A better practice is usually to draft a power of attorney that allows your agent to have access to the account so they can help pay your bills and manage your property. This does not have the same baggage as allowing the co-ownership scenario created by adding their name to the account. Thanks for the question, Lucy. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. John has submitted a question. He says, I've been performing handyman services for many years. Recently, I've been asked to build a garage by a customer. However, I don't have a contractor's license in Georgia. Can I build that garage? Well, that's a great question, John. With your experience, you may have the knowledge to build a garage, but Georgia law requires that if you engage in residential construction services for compensation for more than $2,500, you are required to have that license. Violating this rule can result in criminal prosecution. But if the potential threat of criminal prosecution isn't enough deterrence, there's another potential problem with moving forward with the work. In a recent case decided by the Georgia Court of Appeals, an unlicensed contractor was precluded from even maintaining a legal action against a homeowner where the contractor believed that that homeowner had breached the contract. The court said that Georgia law did not allow a contractor that was guilty of constructing without a license to even maintain a legal action. So essentially, the penalty is that you have no recourse if the property owner defaults in that contract. So John, moving forward with a garage project that will yield more than $2,500 for an unlicensed contractor, you may want to consult with an attorney to get some assistance in obtaining a contractor's license so you can expand your construction business. Thanks for the question, John. If you have a question for LegalWise with Ted Eccles, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com. Andrew has a question for LegalWise with Ted Eccles. He says, I have been named executor by my mom in her will. What do I do now? Well, Andrew, an executor is a title assigned to the person responsible for probating the will and managing the estate of a deceased person. Sometimes an executor is referred to as a personal representative of an estate. First, it's important to know that being named as executor in a will 
doesn't mean that you immediately have work to do. A will is not effective until a person dies. Until the death of the person, there's nothing to be done as the executor. Well, once a person passes away, you still do not have the authority as the executor. The will must first be submitted to the probate court along with a petition to probate the will. Once filed, the court will decide if it is a valid will. And then, if that will is approved, the court will appoint the executor. This appointment is contained in a document called Letters Testamentary. The act of petitioning the court is a legal proceeding, and many people seek the assistance of an attorney in petitioning the court. Once you're appointed, your job is really just beginning. You now have the responsibility and duty to determine what properties in the estate, to determine who the legitimate creditors of the estate are, to pay those creditors, and then to distribute the remaining property to the beneficiaries in accordance with the instructions in the will. For the person who doesn't regularly serve as an executor, this process can be daunting and frustrating unless you're being assisted by an attorney. So, Andrew, you were named as executor because your mom had confidence in you that you would act fairly and responsibly. The will most likely gives you the ability to seek professional assistance and to use the estate proceeds to pay for that service. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. For most of my childhood years, my brothers and I lived in Riverdale, Georgia. My house was in a subdivision, and we didn't have a huge area outside to keep us occupied. However, the property owner behind our house had several trees, and one of them had some low-hanging limbs, and it was a great climbing tree. I would often venture off of our property and go back and climb that tall, sweet gum tree, reaching heights of 20 or 30 feet in the air. From that vantage point, I could observe the other kids in the neighborhood, spy on my brothers, and even see across the highway. Sometimes I would haul bundles of acorns up with me as ammunition to pummel my brothers when they entered the trail looking for me. Looking back, I never even considered what would have happened if I would have fallen out of that tree. I would have been seriously injured. Thinking about that today, some interesting legal issues come to mind. In Georgia, there is a particular common law doctrine called attractive nuisance that protects children from injury when they go on the premises of another person uninvited and get injured when playing on something that can be reasonably calculated to attract the child. A great example is a swimming pool. Most jurisdictions require fences around pools on private property, because they recognize the temptation of a pool to children. Attractive nuisance includes anything that is inherently dangerous that children want to play on or with. This law is pretty complicated. For example, does it include naturally occurring things like a tree or a lake? Well, because attractive nuisance is considered on a case-by-case -case basis, it's difficult to state the rule with perfect certainty. But here are a few things the court will likely consider. Should the owner reasonably expect that children are likely to trespass on his property? 
Another question, should the owner reasonably expect that the attractive situation will involve an unreasonable risk of death or serious bodily harm? And then, is the risk one that children, because of their youth, may not recognize as a potential for harm? Here's another question. Has the owner exercised reasonable efforts to eliminate the risk? And then, is the condition naturally occurring or is it artificial? These questions may not have easy answers. For example, what if the lake, which is natural, has a slide which is artificial? So back to my facts. What about the climbing tree on my neighbor's property? It certainly was dangerous and attractive, and the owner did nothing to prevent me from regularly climbing it, but it was naturally occurring. Well, thankfully, I never fell from that tree, and no one was hurt, except for my brothers who fell victim to the rain of acorns when they veered too close to my treetop perch. Maybe it wouldn't hurt us to look at our property from the perspective of a curious child and determine if we have anything dangerous sitting around that might be tempting to a young person. Attractive nuisance is a remedy only available to children. So take care out there to protect our children who may venture a little too far from their own domain. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. You've been listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information... Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction. Thank you.